edition of that 90s baseball pod i am your host brandon warren you can find me on twitter at brandon underscore warren and i am delighted delighted to be joined by greg olson former mlb reliever nine teams 14 seasons you probably saw him all over the map between the um, early 90s and early 2000s greg it's awesome 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 to have you here no thank you brandon i'm uh Looking forward to a good time talking some baseball with you. Yeah, hopefully it'll be a whole lot of fun. It's going to be a a lot of uh, 90s nostalgia. I grew up in the 90s watching baseball. Greg (laughs) was a professional slash MLB player over that time frame. And so I think it's going to be fun to kind of meld how I saw the game and how you saw the game. And I've seen a lot of nostalgia-based podcasts uh, for wrestling really take off. So I think it could work for baseball, too. Now, first of all, I want to make sure that my use of the word nostalgia doesn't put you out. Because I don't want it to sound like I'm calling you anything uh, old or anything. I I would never, ever do anything like that. No, I uh, wasn't taking it that way. I mean, uh, technically, I played played 30 years ago. So, well, yeah, we 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 can probably run nostalgia by there. I'm fine with that. So... This is Greg Olson. This is not the catcher for the Atlanta Braves that Dan Gladden knocked on his head during the 91 World Series. This is not Greg Golson, who is the uh, former outfielder who kind of kicked around here in the early 2000s. But Greg Olson, two G's at the end of Greg. So we got to make sure people know where to find you. That's Greg Olson 30 on Twitter with two G's at the end. And... uh, so first of all, how, how has Twitter been for you for interacting with uh, with fans and other players? Is, has that been a positive experience? Uh, it really has been. Um, you know, you run into the the one percent that uh, is a knucklehead and wants to say something about you know remembering a game that you screwed up or something along those lines. But for the most part, ninety nine point five percent of the guys out there just want to talk baseball, want to, you know, run stuff by you. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. I got to tell you though, Brandon, you missed one Greg Olson. And I, and Uh the comical thing is every once in a while, I'll get the tight end. Oh yeah. 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 The, uh, the former, I don't think he's playing anymore. I think he just retired Carolina Panther and Chicago bear, I think. And he kind of played all over the world. Seahawk. Yeah. Yeah. That that was kind of funny because I just look at him. I'm like, are you serious? Yeah, you guys, you guys don't have too much in common size-wise, I don't think. Well, size-wise, yeah, about same height, but uh, uh, yeah. he's got about 20, 20 years less than I do. So, <laughs> um, so the concept for this show, and it's something that uh, I thought about, and it's it's powered by Access Twins, brought to you by Humility Chains and Hinterland Coffee, and we'll get into those uh, a bit later. The concept for me was, um, yeah, so we'll we'll talk about '90s baseball. I'll ask you what it was like to deal with the strike and and hopefully we can talk about the steroid era and how the early nineties and late nineties were drastically different for baseball. I mean, again, 10 years in baseball is an eternity. 
you were a relief pitcher and relief pitchers very seldom pitch as long as you did. So there's a lot of changes that kind of happen there. And then we'll probably lean on some guests as well, whether it's with you and me both on the call or if there's any weeks where you're just busy, we'll do a feature called Remember Some Guys and I'll just find someone or you'll help me find someone. We'll bring them on and we'll just kind of grill them on how their 90s experience was. I did see Big Ben McDonald kind of show some interest in coming on the program. I, I, I suppose you guys go all the way back to, uh, if, if not Baltimore, maybe even before that when you guys were in college. Yeah, we uh, played against each other. He was at LSU. I was at Auburn. He, um, I was the number one pick for the Orioles in 88, and he was the number one pick in 89 for the Orioles, and he was actually 1-1. Um, mm-hmm. And we were, we were briefly on the Olympic team together in 1988 until uh, I got mono and had to go home. Oh, no. So, yeah, we, we go way back. Ben McDonald would be – um, man, I don't, I don't know if we could fit everything in in an hour. He is entertaining. Well, it's, it's your time I'm worried about, not mine. So <laughs> we can carve out however much time we can do a series. There's going to be a lot of meat on the bone, I think, is, is what we come back to because I've seen so, so many people express interest. And, I mean, in the NBA, the 90s is a, is a sweet era for people. Uh, the 80s is too, obviously, Michael Jordan's career. Uh, no dynasties so much. Obviously, the Blue Jays early in the decade, Yankees a little later in the decade were really good. And, and in the middle of that, Cleveland could could really go too. But we'll have some fun kind of breaking down just that and, and remembering what uh, you know a lot of people view fondly, both uh, good and I guess not so fondly in some aspects too, um, era of baseball. When you think back towards your career and the 90s, um, what are the first thoughts that come to mind of, of how you remember it? You know, it's fun for me. Um, I was lucky enough to play over three decades. You know, it, it was it, it over the, the the amount of time. It was 14 years. And when you talk to major leaguers, they will usually give you exact service time. <laughs> and uh, so I, I played from 88 to 02. So that's the 14 years. My service time was 12 years. So I actually had the span of three decades, you know, so I got the end of the eighties where it was, you know, the Red Sox and that group. And then the Blue Jays came in and of course the Oakland A's yeah. at the end of the eighties, early nineties, then the Blue Jays came in and then it was the Yankees and the Indians. And, and so I've seen them all. Um, and I got, you know, you kind of look back on things and from the time I came in, I was lucky enough to play with Cal Ripken. And Cal was one of those iconic players that if you had a question or you had any sort of protocol issues, he knew exactly how it should be played just because of his dad, mm-hmm. you know, how long he'd been in the league, his brother. There was this protocol of baseball, and it was Nolan Ryan, it was Roger Clemens that were kind of the guys that kept it. And that was the way I grew up was watching. This is the way baseball's played. And then by the time that I got out in 2002 and you'll find me on certain aspects, I'm, I'm the, I'm the get off a lawn guy. I was going to ask you about that. Um, I, I, I will fall into that in some baseball aspects, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I'm fine with, 
the way, you know, the world evolves and everything else. And I'm, you know, and the world moves past me, but, um, these guys showed me how the game was played. It was such, such a perfect game of, if you do something wrong, it gets taken care of Yeah, inside the game. It doesn't, doesn't go outside of that. And it doesn't usually, unless it's like a St. Louis and the Cubs thing where it ends up lasting like, you know, three weeks or a month, um, things get taken care of. It gets cleaned up. And, and by the time that I got out of the game, long story, really long, but by the time I got out in 02, um, people were making too much money to get hit. Mm -hmm. And if you gave the impression that you were trying to clean up a mess or hit somebody, tempers flared quickly. And, you know, it was the difference of people, people coming to the big leagues in, in the early 2000s, thinking that the game owed them something. And I just sat there and I was looking at some of these kids going, you're not going to last long with this attitude. That just, it, and it was, it was weird over 14 years. You can see, you know, the game cleaning up itself to, I, I, I deserve to be here attitude. And I'm just going, you know what? It might be time for me to go, you know, not that I had the choice. <laughs> well, and you've been out longer than you were in which is to say that there's been a whole other well there's been a whole other era like that of change. So we're not going to yeah. be strictly limited to 90s. I mean if you follow on Twitter at super 70 sports, they don't strictly do 70s stuff. So we can view today's baseball from your 90s mind frame. We can do a lot of different things. We can focus on like just during the time you played, they went from 4 to 6 divisions. They instituted the wild card. They did interleague. So you went from only facing AL guys in the beginning of your career, and then a little bit of NL when Houston was still in the NL, to in Atlanta too, to facing different guys all the time. So I can ask you about facing Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Bonds, Kirby Puckett, and and that sort of thing. Uh, you just missed out on playing with Kirby Puckett by about uh, a year or so. But um, we'll, we'll have a lot of things we can cover that I yeah. think is going to make this uh, a show that we can do for a long, long time assuming people respond well to it. And and for that matter, people will recognize this podcast feed. I co-opted the podcast feed from my old Midwest Swing podcast. Maybe someday we'll bring that back. But the nice thing is if people give us reviews and listens, it helps us on the business side of things. So five-star reviews are huge. You can let people know that you appreciate what we're doing. If you like the show, tell them. If you don't like the show, tell me. If you have questions for Greg... <laughs> I, I assume they can reach out to you directly. We can kind of share those back and forth, or they can just DM me on Twitter at Brent underscore Warren. I have DMs open. So if you have ideas, questions, and that sort of thing, um, we want this to be a collaborative show because, uh, again, we're nothing without listeners. So um, I guess I, I want to get to know you better, both for my sake and for the listener's sake, because I want to plant a seed, a foundation for where we're going to jump off from here. And we haven't discussed this a lot, but I think we're going to have to touch on the 1994 slash kind of into 1995 player strike with one of our upcoming episodes, if not the next one. But um, I do want people to get to know you so they know where you're coming from. But I do want to start with after your playing career, what have you been up to since you retired? Because I know you and I met at Target Field. You were doing some work for the Orioles. You've done some broadcasting, which too I think is going to help make this podcast a much more polished, polished, excuse me, presentation. Easy for me to say, 
But uh, what, what have you been up to the last few years? Oh, man. Um, well, I've been broadcasting the last four or five years. I'm with the Orioles on their radio network, and I will do some ESPN uh, down in Auburn right now doing – I'll do their Auburn – I'll do the Auburn baseball for SEC+. Plus. Mm-hmm. I um, just got done doing the Austin Regional for ESPN, and I'll do some Little League stuff here in the next week or two. So that's kind of what I'm doing now for uh, a long time. I, I, you know, ran a, ran a business, owned a business. I scouted for four years for the Padres as their advanced scout, which uh, for those that don't know, the advanced scout, I didn't never, I never scouted amateur talent. I only went to whoever the Padres were playing three days later and I scouted their players. So I would walk, I would, fly up to San Francisco, watch the Giants play the Cardinals, mm-hmm. and tell the Padres how to get Buster Posey out. So and, quick quick cetera, segue, quick segue. Did you ever meet Mark Merrill? Yeah. I did not. Okay. Well, he's a, he's kind of a, a bigger name around here as far as uh, he was a big player at University of Minnesota, All-American, and then he had a, a brain tumor. And anyway, he scouted for the Padres after his career ended because he wasn't playing – he was gonna, he wasn't going to play – well enough to make the team. He was their bullpen catcher. He and Trevor Hoffman developed this big relationship. But anyway, he scouts. I do know Mark. I okay, do. Okay, yes. good. Perfect. I just didn't know if you guys were uh, were affiliated or associated during that time. But anyway, sorry. Um, not not to derail your point. Back to back to what you were saying. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. That was uh. So I did that. I I, I get confused with. Also, oh, you were a scout. So can you come look at my nephew? Oof. And yeah. And- of I guess uh mourning you know uh, you do something for 30 years out of your life and you're 35 or 36 and you start realizing that you know you don't have to go to the ballpark at three o'clock today and mm-hmm. batting practice at four you know 450 every day is not happening today and I'm sitting at home kind of going now what do I do so it took me a couple of years to um Realized that my elbow didn't work anymore, so I couldn't pitch, and that made it a lot easier to retire officially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are guys who leave because the game's done with them, and there's guys who leave because they're done with the game. And I, I don't feel like baseball discriminates. Again, I don't have that intuition or that experience to lean back on. It's just what I see from uh, from where I'm at. Is that a fair description, or is that kind of uh, simplifying it? You know what? I don't. Uh, there wasn't very many guys that get to leave on their own terms, right? You know, and usually, usually those guys end up, you know, in the Hall of Fame if they get to leave on their own terms. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, man, everybody has to have the the jersey peeled off of them. I think uh, there might have been one guy. It, it was John Cruck that was at the end. I, I talked to him at the end of his career, and I'll never forget it. I was like, how you doing? He goes, man, there's about 10,000 other places I'd rather be than here right now. With the White and Sox. I just kind of looked at, yeah, and I just looked at him, and I was like, you're done? He goes, I'm so done. Um, you know, and I guess there's probably more than more than that, that the body the body gives up, and it becomes painful. It became It becomes really difficult to uh, play the game you love at, at the level you want to play. Mm-hmm. 
And some, you know, some guys are good enough to know when it's time to go. Well, and that was depressing. <laughs> yeah, Grant, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I sent you down there. I sorry. I, sorry I sent you down that road. Uh, yeah, Crux right. uh, last season with the White Sox was actually better than I had remembered. He was still getting on base and doing his thing. Um, a little bit like Ken Herbeck down the stretch. You know, it just it was very clear that those guys weren't the same players but they could still perform at a reasonable level, just not relative to who they had been. So, yeah, I think your point's well taken that, you know, the game in some some respects does chew you up and spit you out. And it's it's kind of one of those weird things where it sounds like it really stinks, but at the same time, it's like the game tells you when you're done. I don't know. I mean, I kind of romanticize that too because I just think baseball is the greatest game. And, and so... Um, you know, I, I I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that necessarily. I just think that oh, uh, it's a weird kind of. I'm not gonna disagree with you. Yeah. Yeah. You I don't know, know. I, I've got it. It's yeah. I got to, it, the game lets you know when you're done, and it's either you physically can't deal with it anymore, mentally you're you know not strong enough to deal with it, but the game lets you know when you're done, and not very many guys have the chance of walking out on their own terms when they're 38 or 39 years old after 17, 18 years, and they're still fairly functional. Most of them know, you know, I can't do it anymore. And, and uh, I guess, you know, going on the other side, you look at Tom Brady, that's what makes this what making him so amazing. Right. Is that kind of looks like there's a window and you're thinking, uh, yeah, he's done. And then he does what he did last year. And then you're going, okay, wow. Yeah. How'd you do that? Right. So, so- yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to go down that path, then I'm not going to say Tom Brady and steroids, but right. We saw some guys saw some guys at the end of the '90s whose career got a big kick, and yeah. you know you start going down the path of going how, why, and then right. later on it comes out. And we'll we'll at least have one episode, if not a full series, on that. So people don't need to <laughs> don't need to worry about that let's let's take it back to the beginning you mentioned covering little league world series stuff uh what was your upbringing like in the game as far as when you started playing when you realized you were good enough to you know play in college at a high level and eventually get drafted where you did it was it pretty early that you knew you were or, or you were told that you had that kind of talent um yeah i was you know all-star in little league and, and would strike out a bunch of guys and equally hit hit or walk about the same amount so it was always always entertaining <laughs> uh through hard through hard i got to high school my dad was my high school coach he's in the uh, american baseball coaches hall of fame coached for over 35 years in the omaha area and my four years in high school, we won the state championship four times. Oh wow! Um, had a you know just a dominant team that that ran for for him for quite a while. And you know I started, well, it was maybe my sophomore year in high school. I started to, you know, threw a couple no hitters, had a good ERA, didn't lose a game, and you start looking at it going, hmm, you know, and getting getting looked at and. Um, I think the, the thing that kind of got me recruited and out into the college world was I played on one of the USA teams my junior year in high school. And with it was uh, we, Jack McDowell was on that team. Mm-hmm. Joey, Joey Bell, 
Oh boy. Um, They're not say that later now. Later to become Albert. Well, later to become Albert. I knew him, you know, I played played with him as Joey. Yeah. Um, but, um, and so we had us three and a guy named Mike Ignatiak who made it up with the Brewers for a little bit of time. So we had four big leaguers on that team. And after that, my recruiting blew up and, and uh, ended up coming to Auburn and kind of figuring out how to pitch while I got here my sophomore year. So that was kind of, you know, like I said, my both my sophomore years were kind of evolutions of I can play this game at the next level. And then I got to college in my sophomore year, I realized I could play the game at the next next level, which was A ball or double A. And then just kept moving up. So the USA U18 team is always fascinating to me because I got to watch the team I think it was in 2009 and that team had Francisco Lindor, Albert Almora Jr., Bubba Starling, Lance McCullers, and a few other guys who made the big leagues, Nicky Delmonico, Blake Swihart. So I always find that USA U18 experience interesting. They came through, I don't know if you'd call it a barnstorming tour, but they played in Minnetonka here in the Twin Cities against the best town team in the state. And, and they beat them like 8-0, I think. You know, it was uh, it wasn't a very competitive game because those kids are incredible. But um, what what was your experience like on the U18 team? Was it a a similar situation where you guys kind of traveled all over, or was it more just the uh, the international play and that sort of thing? Uh, we did the uh, uh, we toured the Montana, South Dakota. I think of where else we toured, but we were kind of on a bus for a while and playing you know playing some of the town teams. Ended up going into, uh, so that was in 1984. That was the year of, you know, the, the great Olympic team that we had out in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so our group was um, playing in a, a kind of a junior Pan American. I don't know what it was, but we got beat by Cuba in the gold medal game. I don't remember who started. I, I got a little bit of time in relief and, and uh, I think we all got beat around quite a bit by, uh, by the Cubans. So it was it was a lot of fun. It was a good group of guys. Um, like I said, Jack McDowell, Albert Bell. They had a pretty. They did. I, I obviously it's much different now where they you know go to Raleigh, Durham, and and mm-hmm. uh, go through a whole bunch of camps. Now uh, back then it was I, I think scouts recommendations and and thirty of us showed up at showed up somewhere I don't remember where and uh, they got it down to twenty and. That was it. Pretty nerve-wracking, I suppose, waiting to find out if you made the cut. Uh, you know what? I just wanted to get a jersey. You know, <laughs> I didn't uh, – you're looking around the room going, man, everybody here is, you know, on the same level. And uh, I just want to get one of those USA jerseys. I'm fine going home after that if I don't make it. But Yeah. Uh, ended up making it and getting uh, getting a win against Sweden. And I think Albert Bell and I threw a no-hitter against Sweden. Oh wow! I got to look back on that one. Um, yeah, I don't, he came into pitch, and a couple of the pitchers ended up getting some at bats, and it was a uh, it was a well run, fun summer of baseball. My a friend of mine insisted that when I when I told him I was doing this podcast that he had run into someone who pitched in the big leagues in Montana around that time. So I wonder if you guys crossed paths. Um, his name was Joe Kiley, but I, uh, I I don't know if that would have been any sort of thing. He insisted, though, when I said that we were doing the show and I explained who I was doing it with, that 
there was he he thought there was some connection. He had showed up and was kind of hanging around the team for a while. So I'll I'll have to bring that up to him. You say it was uh, '84 that you did the Montana thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that sounds about right. So who knows? Uh, small world getting smaller, huh. I guess. Yeah. yeah, that'd be pretty funny. So Auburn um, didn't play with too many noteworthy players there, other than you know Bo Jackson and Frank Thomas. <laughs> um, <laughs> When you play with athletes of that caliber, is it, I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you went fourth overall, you're, you're in that, that mix as well. And so I'm sure you're not looking at them as uh superheroes or anything, but how, how special or how impressive are they at that level where you're just like, man, they can really go. Um, Bo Jackson was on a, a level of athletics that, you know, still we haven't seen, and that's 30 years or 35 years. Uh, he was a senior my freshman year. He just can, you know, you can see that both Bo, that 30 for 30 on Bo, mm-hmm. and some of the stories are so stupid that they're, I mean, beyond crazy stupid, and they're all true. My co- my my college coach is about as solid a human being as there is, Hal Baird. Mm-hmm. And he told a couple of the stories that he had seen and they're just, it's unbelievable. I mean, him running up the wall in Baltimore in uh, old Memorial stadium, he catches the ball over his shoulder and, and takes three steps up the wall. And then one step down, that was the type of stuff that if you tried to do it yourself, you'd end up laying on your back. Yeah. And it just, he did that stuff all the time. He would just do something and you just look at him during on the practice field going, you can't do that. And so that was, that was Bo Jackson. He was, the power was astronomical. Um, speed was astronomical. He had the best arm I've ever seen. He just needed to play more baseball. He was, you know, uh, they, they used the phrase, you know, hundreds, thousands of at bats behind other guys, I mean, he was he was thousands of a, of a bats behind people, and so if he would have just played baseball, stayed healthy, I think it would have been frightening what he would have put up, what numbers. Well, and I was going to ask so, it. I hope it doesn't sound stupid. Was he a a baseball player? Or was he a football player playing baseball? He was the greatest athlete that we've ever had. So that, he could have done whatever he wanted. He could have done whatever he wanted. And I, I don't know if I saw him talk to him. I, I have, you know, memories of talking to him after he had gotten drafted by Tampa Bay. He got, he got ruled ineligible here at Auburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, the SEC, the SEC back in the eighties, you were not allowed to be a professional athlete in one sport and an amateur athlete in another. So Tampa is going to pick him with the number one pick in, I believe 85. 86. Sure. Well, he was senior 85. Um, and so they tell him that he can, they can fly him down for a physical and he gets on a plane, right. You know, January, February, something like that. Right. When we're getting ready to start baseball and gets on a plane, Tampa flies him down there. He takes a physical, he flies back. Well, Tampa told him that it was legal for him to fly on this plane. Well, in the NCAA or the SEC, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so he got kicked, he got kicked off the team about a month into the season and, um, you know, barely got to see what he could do, but it was, he was just, he was frightening. 
how athletic, how good, how hard he hit balls. Everything that he did was just better than everybody else. So, so you know, that's why. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm changing. I'm changing gears. Keep going. Well, I was going to say, I mean, and then Frank Thomas came from the football side and walked out on the baseball field and was very um, just not in baseball, not, not baseball shape, just not a great baseball player, you know, physically, absolutely, utterly gifted beyond, you know, most people, but just wasn't a great baseball player. So he needed, you know, defensively, he wasn't great. You know, needed a little bit of work on on his eye because he wanted to go chasing everything. Mm-hmm. But I mean, his freshman year, he hit 21 home runs in the SEC, and then you know, hit 330, 350 every year, and obviously took that into the big leagues and and you know, quit playing football. So I mean, they were they were two different animals watching Bo and Frank, at, you know, over my career here. Yeah, I think he made the right choice taking football over baseball, not to. <laughs> not not to put too much contrast between him and Bo Jackson, but uh, and then they actually synced up towards the end of Bo's career in Chicago with the White Sox, so that was kind of a cool um, full circle for for that. Did did you get to face Frank a whole lot in the in the big leagues? I would assume so, and if so, I'm sure that wasn't a terribly pleasant experience. He was, um, yeah, I got to face him quite a bit. I don't I have the exact numbers, but uh, he was. So he, he stood so far off the plate in the batter's box that it looked like you had the impression and, and I'll kind of relate it. And Harold Baines was the same way. They were so far off the plate. It mm-hmm. looked like you could throw the ball in the outside corner and there was just no way that they could reach it with a broom. And so he would bait you into throwing a fastball away. And that was exactly what he wanted. He'd dive out there and hit the home run or something out in the right center. So, you had to throw this ball on the inside corner to get him out. And it was just this weird space. It was really hard to get to that, you know, get that pitch to that corner mm-hmm. with Frank Thomas, who's another two feet away. So you're, it's just, a, it was a bizarre look that he gave. And um, so we went back, I think he got, he hit a home run off me to win a game one night in Camden Yards, and then the next night I struck him out to end the game. And uh, <laughs> that that night was uh, was funny because Robin Vin, I had a guy on first base. Robin Ventura was batting third, and I had two outs. I had a three run lead. Frank Thomas had hit a home run the night before off of me to win the game. So next night, and two outs, and Robin Ventura takes a first pitch fastball and lays down a perfect bunt down the third baseline. And I had never seen him bunt. And I just sat on the mound and I was just looking at him and he got over to first base and all he could do is just start smiling at me. <laughs> and I'm going, you know what? If I didn't like you so much, I would hit you the next time just because you just did that. Now I got to face Frank Thomas again. And he's the tying run now. And I'm like, oh, this, that was just not right. You know, so it was ended up being pretty funny. But he's just Robin Ventura was just sitting over at first base laughing. I, I always remember him as so stoic, but I think it's because I went into a couple of his pressers when he was managing the White Sox, and things were a little different then. Um, also, too, <laughs> another hitter that I thought of that stood off the plate like that, and maybe you'll agree or disagree, was Ryan Klesko, who I think 
stood way off the plate but had those long arms to reach everything else. Obviously not as accomplished of a hitter as Harold Baines or Frank Thomas, but just who immediately comes to mind yeah. for me. Um, yeah, no, I played with Ryan in, in Atlanta. Good, good guy. What, uh, what was the process for you, the draft, uh, lead up to the draft? I mean, obviously you're getting buzz that you could go high cause you did. Um, is, is there talk about signing bonuses? Is there talk about where you're going? You know, it's, it's a different system now there's slots and everything as far as teams can only spend so much for their top 10 picks and all that. Um, how was that process for you and how does it differ from what you think it's like today? Um, well, I think people, there's a lot more communication going on now, uh, between the teams and the players slash agent, however you, you know, you want to play that. Um, back then we had a little bit of conversation, nothing about money, nothing about, okay, it, you know, uh, Gavin Sheets is a, a personal friend of ours from his his dad's playing days in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And we would hit, we would, you know, as the draft was coming in and going on, there's phone calls being made to his agents. Hey, if we draft you here, will you take this? And it's just a bizarre world of kind of a negotiation. Hey, we like you, but we need you to fit into this monetary zone is more important than going what your fantasy baseball or fantasy football teams are is like this. I need the best player available. Yeah. And so back in eighties, nineties, before the money got really out of hand, it was okay. Best player available. Who do we like? And then second round, same thing. Now I think it's more concerned with who can we get for what and will they take this under value so that we can spend more money getting a nice player in the 10th round. It's just, it's a different world. It's, I don't know, you know, I'd like to sit in and watch and see exactly how it's done. But uh, the little I know about it is just like I said, it's, you know, where can we fit this guy and you know, how much less will he take under his slot? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a complex puzzle to put together and two, there's different layers as far as you coming out in college versus a guy coming out in high school, the leverage, you know, it gets less and less every year until you're a senior sign. We saw people get kind of up in arms. I think the Cubs signed a guy for a thousand dollars that they took in like the seventh or eighth round and everybody was all upset. And it was like, well, you know, that's, um, that's just kind of how it goes with senior signs. Now in your estimation, who was it that kind of tipped the scales towards how uh, MLB draft picks were paid? I mean, are we talking Brian Taylor, Todd Van Poppel? Where do you think it took that that change or that turn? I think there's been a couple of them. First one was Ben McDonald, who we can again, oh boy. talk about had yeah. on. Um, so uh, I can't remember getting old. Had who had the record? But Andy Bennis was the number one one my year in 88. Mm-hmm. I was I remember one him. four. And Bennis broke the record at 225. That was the signing bonus. That broke, I don't remember who had the record. And so we had it, part of our deal was whatever Bennis got, I got. So we, in essence, got the same thing that Bennis got. The next year, Ben McDonald comes out, and Scott Boris took Ben with the Orioles 1-1, and he got the first million-dollar signing bonus. So he jumped at times five. Wow. 
of what the record was. So that was the first first move into um, the larger signing bonuses. Now, you know, Van Poppel followed McDonald two, maybe two or three years later. I don't mm-hmm. remember what it was, one one, but. So it was McDonald that made the first big jump, and then after that, I don't know where we got into the you know seven or eight million dollar guys, but it's just you know that's a, that's a lot of money for somebody that's never played that you know played at that level, and I don't know what the percentages are. I'd be curious, and somebody can find out on Twitter what the exact percentages above major leaguers that you know get drafted in the first round. Mm-hmm. I had heard it was like six six percent. Um, seems like a lot of money to be spending for a 6% shot. Were you in the one, one conversation the year you came out? I was, yeah, I had it. Um, Padres were one, one and Andy Bennis threw, um, an unbelievable game against Arizona state. He was at Evansville, uh, during one of the regionals and, um, that put him into the one, one. One one mode number two was uh, I think Steve Lewis with Cleveland. Three was Steve Avery with Atlanta, and oh, they wow. were both locked in on those those guys as high school guys. Um, so I was either going to be one one or one four. And uh, I mean after that, Abbott Jim Abbott was number eight. Ventura was seven or nine, something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a pretty good solid nine, 10 guys in the draft. So you just spent about a minute in the minor leagues. I mean, <laughs> not to undersell it, <laughs> but 24 and a third innings. You didn't play in triple a until you were 27 years old. And that's um, guys who are 27 and triple a usually have a different story than you have at that point. But uh, <laughs> what was your minor league experience? Like, did they, did you know you were going to be on the fast track? Did they tell you, did they let your performance dictate that? Um, you know, I'm looking at some of your numbers, and obviously at Hagerstown, you just kind of had a, a real quick cup of coffee and not enough time for any numbers to really normalize, but you were striking out everybody. Was it just kind of like this guy's on the fast track, or or how did that kind of go? Oh, uh, we had um, back again, this is another one of those old back then things, but uh, first round first round picks could have it written in their contract. They're coming out of college that they could get called up to the big leagues and it wasn't unheard of. So the Orioles gave me that. So I was, I was getting called up no matter what I did. And uh, you kindly didn't uh, go through my numbers in Charlotte, which was double a, where I got just absolutely dirt thumped. That's why I said I it was, was gonna... <laughs> not enough time, not enough time. You, you struck out 22 and 15 and a third and we can just leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, I gave up. I gave up a lot of hits and uh, walks, and and uh, yeah, I, I struggled. Those guys, those guys uh, in Double A, they they talk about what's the biggest jump. It's it's from A ball to Double A because now all of a sudden you get this pyramid of two or three A ball teams funneling up to a Double A that is waiting on the Triple A guys to move somewhere. And so you got this log jam starting in double A and these guys, man, they don't waste any time. They see a pitch coming to home plate and they think they can hit it. They're, they're hacking. And so I got, uh, I got kicked around double A got called up to the big league, September 1st or September 2nd of 1988. And on the plane ride from Charlotte with me was Kurt Schilling. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to bring that up. 
Yeah, so he was my he was my roommate in Double A for a little bit. He came up on we're on the same flight going from Charlotte to Seattle, where the Orioles had an off day. And um, shockingly, I got in the first game that uh, I was eligible to pitch in the big leagues and got a win. Wow! So it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a fun little ride that lasted 14 years and you know a whole bunch of stuff happened that isn't normal and uh, that was another one of them where I came into the game we were losing three to one in the bottom of the eighth and Mike Schooler blew the lead in the top of the ninth and Tom Needenfuhrer came in saved the game in the bottom of the ninth and I got my first win and inning of work with one strikeout and I don't know what else there was who'd you strike out do you remember of course. Yeah. First, first hitter of the big league, Steve Balboni. Ooh, big dude. Yeah. I remember, I know that name. Um, yep. you played that double a team had some real talent, obviously, since you were only there for a little while, you maybe didn't play with all these guys, but, uh, Leo Gomez, Steve Finley, who, who ended up being a really great outfielder, uh, Jeff Tackett played in the big leagues for a, a while too. uh, Kurt Schilling, as you noted, and then another name, Pete Harnish, who I think made made yeah. his mark mostly with the Astros, if I'm not mistaken. But um, yeah, that was that looked like it was a pretty fun team. And then uh, Butch Davis too, I'm familiar with because yeah. he he coached for the Twins for a while under I think Paul Molitor when when Molly was the manager here. So I think he was the outfield instructor and first base coach. So uh, yeah, um, very good. Some familiar names there, which is is fun. Do you? I, I'm sure you're going to say no, but is there any part of the minor league experience that you didn't experience that you would have wanted to since it was so short? <laughs> I'm sure no. the answer is no. no. Oh no, no, oh no, no. There's nothing. There's nothing fun. Um, it's a grind. It's hard. You're if, if you're not in AAA, you're on buses. Right, and right. And so you know, Charlotte is an eight-hour bus trip to Birmingham. Oof. That's just that's not fun. Guys don't smell very good after games. Um, you're you're driving all night. Sometimes you know it works out that you by the time you pull into the next city, you're just pulling straight into the stadium and you're playing a game. It's it's you know and and you don't get paid very well. Right. So you're carrying your suitcases around. You're staying at a Motel Six or whatever they can throw you in, which nothing against Motel Six. It'd probably be a Motel it's Four. Just, you guys are downgraded. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's a hard life. It really is. And then if you get lucky enough to get up to AAA, you're 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 flying now, and but you're flying at 5:30 in the morning, so you're getting right. the, the worst flight that you can get. And it was it was. The only thing that kind of kept me going when I went down and played in um, played in Buffalo with the Indians in '95, right? And Billy Ripken was on the team. We had a, just a, we had a great group of guys on this Cleveland, or excuse me, Buffalo team in '95, and it was you know John Farrell, Joe Clink. Holy smokes! It looks like there's uh, about 20 Casey, guys with big league experience. Yeah, you, you got oh, more than Casey Candell, Tori, Tori Lavello, um, Brian Giles. I'm blanking. Brian Giles. Burnett. Thank you. Uh, Ruben Amaro. Ruben Amaro. Holy smokes! I mean, this is this is a lot of. Oh, this still. This is like the best AAA team ever assembled, and it was John Hart told all of us that 
you know, as soon as the strike ended, we're going to get a shot. Well, and you look at and, you look at the uh, the the bold blue ink because that's what Baseball Reference has for guys who play in the big leagues, and it's looks like twenty of the hitters, twenty of the pitchers. And you have to keep in mind, too, this is backing up one of the most legendary middle 90s Cleveland teams, too. So that talent trickled down to uh, a very significant amount of talent playing in Buffalo that year. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a blast. But going back to it, so I got Billy Ripken and I had played together for four years in Baltimore. And we're both just trying to get back to the big leagues, however we can do it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, like I said, a hard ride. And so every time we're at 5.30 in the morning, we're walking through the airport and looking at all the flights and see one to Baltimore. And that was both of our homes at the, you know, even though we were playing for Buffalo. And he's like going, don't let me get on that flight. (laughs) I look over and I see Baltimore or something, you know, and I was like going, all right, I got you. And then the next, you know, next day or something, the next flight, I'd be, you know, I'd be having a hard morning or something. And I just look at him, I was like going, there's a flight to Baltimore, Billy, do not let me get on that. <laughs> he goes, all right, you know, so we're making sure that the other guy is getting on the plane, going to Omaha or wherever, Oklahoma city, wherever we were playing that next night. That's amazing. I, I, I don't ask this to be cavalier, but at how many different sta- stages of your career did you think this might be it? Oh, let's see. Cause I mean, I mean, yeah, no, it's a it's a legitimate question. I blew my elbow in '93. I didn't know if I'd ever throw a baseball again. Yep. '94, um, you know, I had wrecked my mechanics being hurt with my elbow. So '94, at the end of the season, didn't know what would happen. Well, and the strike was going Cleveland. on too. Yeah, and then I signed with Cleveland. Went to um, went to um, didn't. Did all right, you know. Ended up doing well because I got traded to Kansas City, and they gave me a shot to pitch, and that worked out well. And then after that, I think uh, one more time in Detroit, mm-hmm. where I was looking around the room, and I just given up two runs on a single to a guy that shouldn't be in the big leagues, and that's kind of looked at my catcher Terry Steinbach and going, "Should I just quit?" Well, and Terry, <laughs> and he didn't give we know me Terry a, around he here. He didn't give me a yes. Yeah, he didn't give me a yes or no. He gave me a okay. If you do this, you don't you don't get to come back. Yeah. And I was like, that's not really the answer I wanted, but it's a very good point. <laughs> Sometimes you got to you uh, got to have someone who will tell you the way it is without sugarcoating it. And I feel like Terry who also st- struck me as pretty stoic, uh, very very good catcher, um couldn't really run too much, but uh especially not at the time he was with the Twins. But um yeah, if you got a guy who will tell you what you need to hear, those are pretty valuable guys. Yeah, it ended up, you know, kind of was like, oh, well, wasn't, you know, you were supposed to say, no, you're good. But it was, all right, yeah, you know what? If I actually go down this path, I'm not coming back. And so I think that was the last time. So what I ended up fish three or three or four times where I just kind of looked around the room and looked at a looked at a flight and started thinking about what the next piece of life would be. But ended up uh, ended up lasting another four or five years after that. Yeah, and we'll talk about Minnesota because you know you look at the numbers and it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, was that a, a, another spot where you're like, "Oof, I don't know what's going on here." I mean, again, only eight and a third innings, but um, it didn't go well. Eighteen runs. Well, yeah, eighteen runs, give or take. I think seventeen, eight. Seventeen, yep. Yeah. Um, now you know what? That was weird. I really, I threw really well in camp, and I had come in as a minor league free agent, 
Tom Kelly was my manager on the Japanese American all-star team that we took over in 92. I bet you got some TK and stories. So, uh, I don't have enough. I wish I had more, <laughs> but yes, I, 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 I got a couple entertaining ones, but he, um, so I threw really well in camp, made the, made the team as a minor league free agent in 97. And right before we broke camp, I think I threw back to back days. And was just, you know, had good two good outings. But somewhere along the line of getting on the plane to go up to Minneapolis, I started flying open with my front shoulder. I really didn't realize it. I was still throwing so well. And, I mean, it was, it was no time. And all of a sudden, it was like I couldn't throw strikes. My fastball was you know, sinking a lot more than it normally does. So I couldn't control it. And it was, that wasn't working. My breaking ball was awful. And it was everything that was going through with uh, everything that goes on with your front shoulder leaking out or called flying open. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I was just, I was awful. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get anybody out. I gave up six runs against the Orioles in like one inning, which, you know, exacerbated the whole exacerbated the whole story yeah but um so i mean that was it and i ended up going to kansas city kind of got myself got myself fixed a little bit uh when i went down to omaha minor leagues and pitched for pitched for a bit Mm -hmm. um and just got myself squared up and fixed and and went to kansas city and actually i think i had like a 20 inning scoreless streak right off the get-go wow you know something was just weird i just you know i saw Tom Kelly after that and he just looks at me and goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you made it back. You're, you're, you're a major league pitcher. And that was kind of all he said, but um, you know, it meant a lot to me because it was just, I was awful for him. Yeah. He's a, he's a man of the words. Yeah. And it was just, you know, he goes, you deserve to be here in the big leagues. And uh, so it was, it was it was a nice moment, and I ended up throwing really well for Kansas City, getting a shot with, uh, you know, doing the minor league free agent again with the Diamondbacks, and I got a little career kick. Mm-hmm. Got back on track after that Kansas City move, but Minnesota was Minnesota was right. They gave me a shot, and just I started flying open. I couldn't get it fixed, and I didn't recognize it because I was doing it for so long. And so I'm not going to belabor your MLB career too much because we're going to get into that a lot here um, <laughs> in subsequent weeks. There are a few things I want to touch on before we let you go. Uh, first impressions of the Metrodome, because I know Twins fans are always wondering how guys feel about that building. Um, main impression of the Metrodome. First impression was just like, all right, kind of weird. Um, main impression was... I hate this place. I couldn't get anybody out. I couldn't get any of the twins out. <laughs> and, you know, even when I was getting guys out, something stupid would happen. I swear they turned on the vents behind home plate. Only in the bottom of the ninth inning. That's the um, rumor. That's the rumor. Know, yeah. And then you got guys like, uh, then you got guys like Kirby Puckett and, um, you know, Herbeck, I couldn't get out. Puckett was a coin flip. If I could, Get him to hit a curveball at somebody. Well, and you didn't have to throw uh, him strikes. Hit. He hit everything. Yeah. Oh, no. You, you, you. That was almost the safest space to throw him was a, something right down the middle, you know, because <laughs> he was never going to see it. Yep. You know, 
and you know they bring in Randy Bush to hit for somebody at the end of at the end of the lineup if they needed a pinch hitter. It was just a hard place for me to pitch. I don't know how many blown saves I ended up having there, but wasn't a whole lot of fun for me. You you never made a big league start. How do you feel about that when you think back on your career? You know, as a starter, number one starter in Auburn, and then you become just a reliever. We'll talk about that transition, but does part of you wonder what might have been different if you had been a starter instead of a reliever or not really? I think I, I, I was – I started my freshman year here at Auburn and sophomore year moved to being a reliever. And it was, it was my mentality. I had to play every day. I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't do the, you know, every five days um, I had, you know, I had three pitches, so I could have been a starter. It was just not my mentality. I wanted to pitch every day. I wanted to have, have some effect on how the, you know, the team winning or losing. And so I don't, uh, I would have liked to gotten one start. I almost did. Kevin Apier did something getting ready to warm up in Toronto when I was with Kansas city in 97 and, and, uh, Kansas city had stretched me out. So I made some starts in the minor league in Omaha mm-hmm. and I was, I was sitting in the bullpen watching Apier warming up going, is this going to be my first major league start? And he ended up, he ended up answering the bell and, I didn't get to start and ended up watching a nice bullpen by Kevin Apier and went back into the clubhouse and grabbed something to eat and sat in the bullpen for the rest of the game. No, it is what it is, right? Last thing we got for you before we let you go, <laughs> you played with some incredible managers. Do you do you feel like that was a, a fun thing, fun part of your career? Obviously, Bobby Cox, Buck Showalter, uh, Frank Robinson, and Tom Kelly very briefly. Um, what Was that – was there a lot of meaning in that for you? Does a reliever have any sort of bond with the manager? What What would you say as far as the relationship you had with some pretty legendary managers? Oh, man, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that one. Um, we try to keep it fresh here. I, I, that's the one thing I try yeah, to do. Yeah, no, that was good. You can fall into some easy uh, tropes, you know, as far as questions to ask. So I, I try to change it up a little bit. No, that was a really good one. Um Frank Robinson was my first major league manager and he is he gave terrifying the opportunity. Was he terrifying? He can't. He is for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he was. Um, but he gave me for some reason, made me comfortable enough that, I mean, it's my rookie year. I am 22 years old and we have a fog game in Baltimore and it's, it's literally an all out fog game where anything goes up in the air. It's going to be, it's going to fall because nobody knows where it is. And I don't pitch that night and we're winning two to one against the Yankees or something. And I'm, you know, two months into being a major league closer and he put somebody else into the game and we end up losing three to two because one of the fly balls landed. And, um, I had a, I walked into his office. I didn't know any better. I walked into his office. I was like, why didn't I pitch tonight? That was my game. <laughs> and my pitching coach, my pitching coach, Al Jackson looks at me as I'm walking out and he goes, you are, you have to be one of the dumbest SOBs I have ever met in my life to go do what you just did. And I was like going, and Frank, Frank was great. He never said a word. He, he answered my question. And, you know, we had a great relationship until the, the day that he passed. Um, and then I go to Johnny Oates and I were, you know, Johnny Oates was a great guy. Oh yeah. Legendary. Coach. Yep. Um, 
then we go to I go to Bobby Cox. I, I you know what I felt bad. I never gave Bobby Cox a a, a decent a decent outing. I was off. Uh, <laughs> I was coming off coming off an elbow injury, so yep. never really got to know him like I'd like to. Moving on, then I had uh, Mike Hargrove, and I he didn't like the way I pitched, so I didn't pitch. And that was Cleveland in '95, and then I had Bob Boone in '95 uh, in Kansas City, and I was Boone and I got along great. Another lifer. Yep. Then uh, Buddy Bell in Detroit. In Another lifer. <laughs> oh, but, but Buddy was great. Buddy would, uh, you know, after we'd win a game, be in Seattle or somewhere, and I'm always the first one there and the last one to leave, and I'd hear this, "Hey, Ols," and he's screaming from his office, and I'd go walking in, and he's like, "Hey." Teeing off tomorrow at 7:30. You there? And I was like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> he would set up two foursomes, and and I'd get invited to go play golf with him. Awesome. Um. Yeah. Let's see. Where would we go after that? Terry Collins. No, Terry Collins didn't really get to know. It was a month and a half and a weird trade that yeah. felt like some people wanted me in Houston for the playoffs, and some people didn't. So yeah, that's not a good. Didn't feeling. pitch much. Tom Kelly was awesome. We can go into Tom Kelly for, for days. He was mm-hmm. in the brief time that I had him. He was, he was awesome. Really was. Um, I loved him. And that was, that was just, I guess, you know, same as I said with Bobby Cox, I wish I would have, wish I would have been functional because <laughs> he was, uh, he was great. And so, and then Show Walter, the only manager I ever had that uh, I talked out of taking me out of a game. I've heard that he's got and, a lot know, of polarizing opinions on how people feel about him. Oh yeah, he's 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 fifty fifty all over the board. You mm-hmm. either love him or you hate him, but he's the only manager who ever came up to me and asked me, you know, about a trade that he was getting ready to make, what I thought. And I just sat there and I looked at him, I was like, Wow. Never been asked this question. This is kinda <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um then I had Davy Johnson and Jim Tracy. Yeah, Davy's a legend. So, I, I don't know much about Jim Tracy. I I mean I know I watched during his era, but I've never heard any stories one way or the other about uh, him as a manager. Quiet, very cerebral. Um, good man. Really good man. I, I didn't have, I, I didn't have a manager. I didn't like, I really didn't. Good. Well, that's, that's great yeah. to hear. And uh, we will, we will touch on all of that in extensive depth as we go on. But uh, again, thank you for a, a tremendous inaugural episode. I'm thinking we've got something here. And so hopefully Listeners agree. Again, if you're listening to us, five stars on iTunes would be beneficial. We can tell our advertisers that we're really killing it, even if we're not. Um, check out Humility Chains. It's Royce Lewis's mom, Twins Prospect Royce Lewis's mom, making uh, chains that are cheap. All the proceeds go to Negu, which is uh, N-E-G-U. It's a foundation that Royce and his mom feel very strongly about. And Hinterland Coffee. Check out Hinterland Coffee online. It's a friend of mine who roasts coffee in Maple Grove and ships it. Maple Grove, Minnesota. So uh, all kinds of fun stuff going on here. And other than that, I mean, did we leave anything out that you wanted to get uh, get out there in the uh, the atmosphere here uh, with the first episode? No, Brandon, you were awesome. Uh, came prepared, and like I said, you hit me with a couple questions that in 35 years or so I have never gotten. So looking forward to uh, looking forward to episode two, and yeah. I'll probably have to come up with some stuff and and uh, put you on the line for a little bit. Well, good. I'm going to – I think we probably will do the 1994-95 strike. We'll talk about 
when you started to sense it could happen, what your level of involvement was in terms of CBA stuff and uh, replacement players, of course, because, I mean, obviously you would have a stronger feeling than I would, but it was hilarious. Um, and then <laughs> and then from there, you know, we'll talk about Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Bonds, Kirby Puckett, Cal Ripken Jr. We'll probably have a whole episode on Cal Jr. And obviously you have experience with Billy too. And um, so we got all kinds of fun stuff coming up. You can follow him on Twitter at Greg. That's G-R-E-G-G Olson, O-L-S-O-N 30. On Twitter, you can follow me at Brandon underscore Warren. Five stars on iTunes. Hit us up with ideas or questions that you have. But until next time, thank you for checking out that 90s baseball podcast.